You're listening to a Cyberwire podcast from N2K Networks, powered by Dragos. It's November 16th, 2022, and you're listening to Control Loop. In today's OT cybersecurity briefing, the U.S. Department of Energy seeks to improve visibility into ICS environments. NIST has issued a proposal for upgrading cybersecurity at water plants in the U.S. A patch has been issued for a critical vulnerability that affects flow computers from ABB. Our guest, Ashif Semnani from Synobus, shares lessons learned from nearly two decades of OT experience. Today's Learning Lab is the third in a series with Mike Hoffman, Principal Industrial Consultant at Dragos, teaching InfoSec professionals how to think about OT security. Representatives of NATO's member countries met in Rome last week on Wednesday and Thursday to review and renew the Atlantic Alliance's Cyber Defense Pledge. Most of the proceedings have been closed to the public, but the U.S. State Department announced ahead of the sessions that cybersecurity for the energy sector is figuring prominently on the agenda. And some of the second day's keynotes are publicly available. We sat in virtually on one of them by U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor Ann Neuberger. She began by noting that NATO has remained relevant as the world and the technology in it have evolved. She stressed that recent experience, especially what she describes as Russia's brutal and illegal war against Ukraine, has highlighted the importance of cybersecurity preparedness and partnership. This is not only a wartime lesson. As Neuberger went on to say, Effective international partnerships are necessary to defend against transnational threats, and such threats are endemic in cyberspace. Preparation and partnership seem to have spared Ukraine much of the worst that had been expected of Russian cyber attacks. Russia's hybrid aggression against its neighbor has turned in recent weeks to attacks on critical infrastructure, especially basic civilian infrastructure like power and water distribution. The Russian attacks have been directly and violently kinetic, delivering high-explosive and not-the-malware packages that had been widely expected during the run-up to war. This suggests that Russia, whatever its intended aims were, is no longer planning on having to restore basic services in conquered provinces quickly, probably because Moscow has begun to doubt the full victory it expected until it was ejected from the towns around Kyiv. It's also a sad reminder that resilience must be prepared against a full range of eventualities, from DDoS through severe weather and all the way to sabotage and missile strikes. The U.S. Department of Energy is adjusting its security strategy to increase OT threat monitoring, according to Government CIO magazine. At AFSIA's Energy Infrastructure and Environment recent summit, the DOE's Chief Information Officer Ann Duncan said that increased connectivity with smart devices could have unknown consequences. Duncan stated, Every one of those entry points that you and I have and the utility companies have 
is an entry point for cyber criminals to break in. We have to secure not just, you know, the operations center, but your house and your car and the batteries on your house and your thermostat. Those are connected to the grid. And the last thing we want to hear is that someone's Nest thermostat brought the grid down in D.C. Additionally, Payush Kumar, director of the DOE's Office of Cybersecurity, Energy Security Emergency Response, stated that the department is teaming up with the private sector to improve monitoring of ICS environments. Kumar said, For a very long time, we've done a really good job on the IT side. OT is where we're seeing a lot of cyber adversaries focus, and that's the part of the network that can actually have impacts on energy delivery. We really need to get visibility. Anne and her team are thinking about that visibility into the PMA networks. We're thinking about it and working with the energy sector to also deploy similar technologies. GovCIO notes that last year's Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act handed the Department of Energy $62 billion to make improvements to the power sector. Kumar stated, This is a strategic opportunity like we've never had before. In many ways, with the grid of the past, we were bolting on cybersecurity. I think we have an opportunity now that we can all be seizing upon where we actually design the grid with cyber-informed engineering. We are engineering things more securely from the get-go. FedScoop reports that the National Institute of Standards and Technology is soliciting comments for a proposal that would improve cybersecurity for the water and wastewater sector in the U.S. The project is being run through the National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence. NIST is accepting comments until December 19, 2022. The NCCOE is seeking input from water utilities of all sizes, small, medium, and large. The center stated in its announcement, The increasing adoption of network-enabled technologies by the sector merits the development of best practices, guidance, and solutions to ensure that the cybersecurity posture of facilities is safeguarded. The NCCOE will demonstrate use of existing commercially available products to mitigate and manage these risks. The findings can be used as a starting point by utilities in mitigating cybersecurity risks for their specific production environment. This project will result in a freely available NIST cybersecurity practice guide. The NCCOE added that many OT devices are now converging upon information technology capability with the advent of industrial Internet of Things devices and platforms, such as cloud-based SCADA and smart monitoring. Are water utilities at risk? Sure, they are. We're seeing in the hybrid war against Ukraine right now that kinetic attack often succeeds or replaces cyber attack. And as we mentioned earlier, water has, with electrical power, been the infrastructure sector most targeted by Russian missiles this past month. Clarity has discovered a high-severity vulnerability, CVE-2022-0902, affecting flow computers from electrical equipment provider ABB. These computers are used to measure oil and gas volume and flow rates, and Clarity notes that these measurements are critical not only to process safety, but are also used as inputs in other areas, including billing. Clarity responsibly disclosed the vulnerability, and ABB has issued a patch. ABB stated, An attacker could try to exploit the vulnerability by creating a specially crafted message and sending the message to an affected system node. This would require that the attacker has access to the system network, 
by connecting to the network either directly or through a wrongly configured or penetrated firewall, or that he installs malicious software on a system node or otherwise infects the network with malicious software. In general, an attacker could brute force its way past authentication and from there use a path traversal vulnerability to achieve root access. So far, ABB says, according to Security Week, that it's not aware of any exploitation of the issue. Finally, on the eve of Veterans Day last week, CISA released 20 new industrial control system advisories. They affect 16 Siemens products, two Omicron products, and one product each from Delta Electronics and LS. Go to CISA's website and find the notes on the system you use. Our guest, Ashif Samnani, is Industrial Control Systems Cybersecurity Leader at Synovus Energy. He has nearly two decades of experience in the OT world, and he shares with us these insights. I'd say I've been working in the cybersecurity space for the last 17 years. Uh, I've uh, worked for various industries, including upstream, downstream oil and gas, uh, t- technology, and uh, finance. Uh, I've worked for companies such as uh, Symantec, um, Spectre Energy, Enbridge, Husky Energy, and uh, Synovus uh, Energy. So I've uh, worked in various uh, aspects of cybersecurity, including threat management, vulnerability management, incident response, forensics, governance, risk and compliance, and industrial control system cybersecurity. And in the nearly two decades that you've been in the space, I mean, what are some of the real significant changes that you've seen? Within the OT side, uh, I've seen uh, automation of uh, discovery of new vulnerabilities and threats uh, within the environment. Uh, The technology has been evolving. So what we've been doing in the IT space is similar to what we're now doing in the OT space, right? So there has been an involvement in the types of uh, technologies we've seen. Even uh, the evolution of threats within the space have uh, become far more uh, apparent, right? Uh, I remember back in 2012, I was doing some research around Stuxnet. Um, that was one of the first significant uh, cybersecurity threats uh, within the OT space. And now we see quite a bit uh, relative to the OT area. Nothing as uh, prominent as uh, Stuxnet, but uh, we've we've seen quite a bit, right? So it's just an evolving space within the OT and ICS area of cybersecurity. Yeah. I mean, as you look at some of the threats that the various uh, OT organizations are facing here, uh, does any in particular stand out to you in terms of uh, the potential vulnerability? Well, the biggest vulnerabilities, uh, and, and this is what we see in the OT space, is that a lot of OT uh, incidents are stem from the IT space, right? So what we see is a lack of segregation within the um, OT environment or even proper segregation. So that's one of the things that we still face within organizations. So my team is responsible for the segregation between the IT and the OT network, and we're looking at a complete segregation model where we segregate only not only at the network layer, but also at the the identity layer, right? So we're trying to complete uh, full segregation within um, our organization. Um, I'd say we've done quite a bit. Uh, I'd say about 75 to 80% uh, has been completed. We're working on our last uh, st- stretch 
so we can complete the segregation model. Can you give us some examples of some of the specific challenges that you and your team have faced when trying to to go through something like this? I'd say um, we haven't seen too many challenges. Um, I'd say when we first initially did this at Husky Energy, because the Husky actually merged with uh, Synovus Energy, um, one of the things around uh, business adoption and getting buy-in from the business, so we conduct, so we can uh, conduct our security assessments. Um, the segregation, I didn't see much of an issue with, but as we start going into the OT environment, I feel that the business didn't have too much confidence in terms of what technologies are out there to support the cyber cybersecurity objectives within the OT environment. So I'd say business adoption was one of the biggest uh, challenges that we faced. So from your experience, are there particular OT uh, verticals that that have a better time with this journey than others? In other words, you know, does, does uh, water treatment plants do better than electricity or vice versa? I, I would say um, we see uh, verticals that have done quite well actually is around the electricity verticals, right? Uh, so especially around NERC SIP requirements, uh, I think we've uh, seen quite a bit there in, in advancement. Um, the oil and gas sector are now is now seeing a significant, um, you know, adoption rate as a result of regulatory requirements uh, such as CFATs and the U.S. Coast Guard requirements. So we're seeing a lot of uh, new cybersecurity requirements, uh, even TSA, whereby. Uh, we um, actually have to implement cybersecurity controls. So now as regulatory requirements are starting to come into play, there's a stronger adoption rate as it relates to implementing cybersecurity controls. And when you look at a potential timeline for, for getting folks where they need to be, what, what do you suppose is, is realistic? Are, are we talking about years, decades? Where do you suppose we stand? I'd say our first journey uh, took about, it depends on the size of the organization. So for instance, uh, when I was at Husky Energy, we had a total of 100, 100 sites, a little bit over 100 sites, uh, large uh, refineries and stuff. Uh, with our journey, it took roughly about three years to complete the network segregation because we also have to consider turnaround times uh, within the different um, facilities, right? So I'd say three years for your initial program and then another three years for a second round if you want to build like um, OT network uh, visibility as it relates to um, ICS cybersecurity, right? And vulnerability management, right? So if we split the cybersecurity program into two, I'd say anywhere from five to six years for a company this large. And what do you suppose some of the roadblocks are for, for people to, to put in place the things that, that need to be done? Um, I'd say some of the roadblocks, they're, they're always technical roadblocks. For instance, um, having um, old and archaic technologies within the OT environment uh, is one of the challenges. So using traditional tools can be difficult, right? Um, that's some of the technical roadblocks. Um, timing, um, our facilities run uh, 24 by 7. So we mm. need to work with um, the facilities to ensure that we plan for turnarounds and implement uh our cybersecurity controls then. I think uh, what one of the challenges also is around standardization of technologies because uh, especially with uh, large uh, oil and gas companies such as like Husky or Synovus, we tend to work in a federated model, right? So um, there's always a challenge with um, implementing uh, different technologies because of um, the technologies that are currently implemented, whether it's Rockwell, ABV, Siemens, um, any of those uh, technologies, uh, some of them 
don't fare well with uh, certain types of cybersecurity technology, such as antivirus. Some may use Semantic, others may use McAfee. Um, it, we always have had challenges with uh, deploying uh, EDR technology, such as CrowdStrike, uh, because uh, it hasn't been uh, fully compatible with some of our ICS technologies. So there, there are some roadblocks there, right? Uh, sometimes uh, the technology is not uh, mature enough to handle um, archaic uh, OT spaces. I'm curious, you know, it's practically a cliche that there's, uh, you know, tension between the IT and the OT sides of the house. I'm wondering, in your experience, how accurate that is. I mean, have we gotten to the point where teams are getting past that? We're, we're evolving now because uh, the IT and OT space is slowly starting to converge. I'd say, uh, let's let's flip back uh, 2012 when I first did um, OT cybersecurity. There was a large... Uh, disconnect between um, the organizations, right, uh, between the IT and OT space when I worked at uh, Spectra Energy, right? Um, the business was not uh, adopting uh, best practices that IT dictates. Plus, you also have um, the mindset of an IT person going into an OT space. Uh, typically, OT personnel or engineers, um, they understand the technologies a little bit better. But nowadays, right, um, you're seeing the IT and OT teams working very closely because they understand that IT OT threats are primarily stemmed from IT-specific incidents, right? So we're seeing um, tremendous adoption, especially the fact that, new, like I said, new regulatory requirements are coming into place. So we need to ensure that um, the OT space is uh, secured and they're working very closely with IT. So regulate, regulatory requirements really drive a lot of the spaces, plus also, the known incidents, for instance, like Colonial, um, that resonated mm. uh, with the uh, OT um, groups, and they were concerned about uh, their security posture. So they're working closely with the IT teams and stuff, right? Um, I know at the current company, we work very closely with the um, various teams uh, within the OT space. So we don't see much of an issue these days. But uh, if we flash back like five to six years ago, or even 10 years, um, yes, there was a significant issue in terms of working with the IT group. And what about management, you know, the, the powers that be? Where are they on, on their journey of, of kind of understanding the resources and tools that folks like you need to uh, accomplish your mission? I would say they get it now, right? Um, it, but it's always reactive, right? And that's a challenge, right, uh, that we face uh, when a large cyber incident such as uh, Colonial comes into play. It's like, wow, okay, we need to do this, right? Um, proactiveness, uh, it, it's there, right? It's, it's, I'm not saying it's not there, but um, to really get management push, you, it's typically, and it's always been this case where you, you stumble into a large industry Based uh, cyber incident, right, um, and that's that's a wake up wake up call always. But uh, I think uh, management needs to be a lot more uh, proactive, right? Uh, I've seen it in various companies where it's it's a little quiet until something happens, right? And that's still the case. Where do you suppose we're headed here as you look towards the next few years? Uh, any notions for how things are going to evolve? Um, yeah, I, mean, I could speak a few, right? For instance, uh, in the OT space, uh, the adoption, and this has already happened, is adoption of cloud, right? Uh, within the OT space, that's uh, one of the things that we're facing, especially with uh, companies such as AWS that are building like uh, specific data lakes related to data historians, right? Which is not commonly um, found. So now we're, what's happening is we're the boundaries of the OT, they're, they're changing, 
right? Um, we're not only going into the IT network, but we're going to the cloud, right? So that's a adoption rate um, that I see. Um, in addition, um, the new technologies which are coming out that leverages AI and machine learning to detect for threats and vulnerabilities. We've seen a lot of those coming up, but I think that's uh, growing, right? Um, the threat and vulnerability Threat and vulnerability platforms are evolving also, right? So maybe next generation, like threat management systems uh, coming into play, which fare better in the OT space. Um, typically, uh, technologies right now, um, based off of the architecture, they don't they don't fare well. Sometimes we don't have that uh, complete visibility. But I think we'll see find better technologies uh, within um, the space. Are you optimistic that uh, we're going to get there, that we'll, we'll get a good handle on these things? I'm very op- optimistic, right? Uh, I've seen this uh, industry grow over the last uh, 10 years, specifically the OT area. I think we'll get there, right? Um, and I, you know, as, as um, uh, regulatory requirements come into play, uh, another one I forgot to mention was Bill C-26, which is in Canada, right? Uh, that takes um, cybersecurity requirements for critical infrastructure companies that... Um, employee critical infrastructure, right? Uh, so I feel heavily confident that uh, we will get there, right? It'll take a little bit of time, but uh, I'm sure um, with the executives understanding the new requirements from a compliance standpoint and the evolving threat landscape, uh, they'll take this um, a lot more seriously and consider the investment. Our thanks to Ashif Samnani from Sonovas for joining us. today's Learning Lab, we feature the third in a series with Mike Hoffman, Principal Industrial Consultant at Dragos, teaching InfoSec professionals how to think about OT security. Here's Mike Hoffman. This is something that I do a lot when I'm dealing with customers and we're on an engagement, is looking at crown jewel analysis. And this is really um, understanding what really matters within your environment. And, and it's understanding those, those key areas that you have to have operational. And again, this is digging into operations. So when you come from that IT perspective, it's really important to sit down with your operations folks to really understand the security controls we're putting in place. What are we actually safeguarding against? What physical systems out there uh, do we have in place? And what are the systems that are more imp- most important? Because again, not all ICS devices are the same. And each one of them may have different levels of of process impact. Um, When we do identify those areas, um, we probably need to be thinking about other mitigative controls to put in place. Um, And and, or mitigative controls, engineering controls, uh, you know, again, even maybe engineering it out. But going through the CGA process is not something that, that you're, um, your IT security folks can do. It's not something that your OT security folks can be doing in a vacuum. This requires the team. This requires folks from operations and so forth to really sit down and understand your process environments. Um, and, and I'll first of all, I'll say that you probably have a lot of crown jewels within your environment, probably more than one. So this is a methodology, if you will, um, that, that you can take back into your, your companies and you can begin to work these uh, processes out. 
But first of all, what you do is identify the top level systems um, or and you and so you're looking at the regions, the demographics and so forth. You begin to get into um, the subsystems where you're looking at you know the collection of facilities and, and the, the environment. And then you get actually down into the critical functions. So what is the areas, you know, this may be utilities, you may be heating and steam and that kind of thing. Uh, and then you look at the critical components. What makes up that critical function? Well, it's the components underneath. These may be all your pumps and motors, um, you know, your, your actual boilers and those kind of things. And then we get out down into the controllers. These are the devices that are actually, you know, um, is this is that interface from logical into physical. And these are those systems that, that if they are compromised, attacked, manipulated, can actually cause some sort of a effect to your, your process environment, your plant floor, your systems. And then we kind of work back up the pyramid, if you will. And I, once we've identified your crown jewels to say what, so now we've identified the things that can actually be impacted. Let's work back up this pyramid to understand how, how the system is interconnected with other systems. We may be able to see that, you know, we have a lot of uh, connectivity around this critical system that we may want to put some more security controls around. We may want to monitor. We may even want to isolate this. This thing has been deemed so critical and important that we actually need to disconnect it. Uh, maybe hook it up with a serial connection. It to go backwards in technology, but sometimes it's a requirement because we, you know, this thing cannot absolutely not be compromised by a routable protocol. So we may actually even have to isolate it with with a you know think about RS two thirty two and forty five that might need to occur because you know due to the the risk of this system. One example what I want to share here really quick is that I found uh, working again in a refinery environment. Um, I've seen refineries kind of fall on their face, if you will, uh, trip offline a number of times. And the, one of the things that, that did it actually was plant error. And you think about that. And so we can take this analogy, though, into any environment that requires instrument error. So instrument error uh, drives control valves. It drives different uh, those physical systems uh, within the uh, process environment. So... So control valves need air. So let's talk about the refinery for a really quick. So what is the system? Where does air come from? It's in the boiler house um, or, or whatever you would call that, your utilities area. Then we dig down into that critical function or subfunction. So we begin to identify um, instrument air. You normally have some sort of a pressure control system. You're also drawing your air. So you have dew point, you have dew point analyzers and so forth. And you have systems around your critical function. Your components, uh, well, of course, your compressors. So you probably have a couple different air compressors out there. Um, you have your pressure control station and, of course, your dryers. When we get, look into your controllers, though, you may have a vibration monitor around that compressor. Uh, that vibration monitor probably has shutdown settings on it. Um, so you need to look at, okay, so um, that thing can actually trip my compressor offline. Uh, normally, you have some sort of a DCS system that's controlling all of your, your pressure controls around your instrument air. Uh, you have your dryer PLC. So you have um, you know, some sort of a drying mechanism to dry your air uh, to get the moisture out of it. And then, of course, your dew, dew point analyzer, which is actually measuring the dryness of that air. So then when we get down into the crown jewels, we begin to say, okay, so what we really need to do is be protecting this vibration monitor. We need to be looking at the 
um, the interconnections, if you will, of that, that system. Can somebody remotely get to it, change settings? Look at the PLC. Can somebody um, get to this PLC from the network? Uh, you know, what kind of uh, controls do we have around that? On the DCS system, the analyzer. And we, we kind of go back up and look at the remote access capabilities. Look at our firewalls, look at those rules. So again, this is just an example of crown jewel analysis, but it's but I think it's a, a very, very, um, a, an easy one to kind of walk through. And so you can kind of take this back into your workplace of work and, and, and see how this can actually be used in your environment. When I think about um, security and where do we start? So we begin with architecture and architecture is really where you get the most bang from your buck, if you will. This is where we are ensuring that our systems are well architected out, and we're also maintaining our systems. Uh, I'll be talking about architecture here in a little bit uh, on, uh, around uh, the actual areas, but then we get into passive defenses. These are systems that can work without the human involved. Uh, think about um, uh, things such as you know, um, you know, uh, monitoring tools, your firewalls, and so forth that are all there to passively defense. And then we get into that active defense. And this is where we have people in our environment. They're actually um, interacting with our environment. These are your analysts, um, SOC analysts, and those kind of things that are looking through the logs, looking through that network traffic and, and, and getting into um, those spaces. As you move over into intelligence, your, your maturity is coming up. This isn't um, creating your intelligence. This is often consuming your in the intelligence. Could be from ISACs, could be from other areas where you're getting intelligence down. So with that, focused efforts. Um, so now let's get into some of the discussion around how do we, um, where do we start? Because the the issue of securing OT is, is big, it's challenging. And so a lot of times I've heard, and I've been in a lot of discussions around, you know, trying to map out, put in all these controls, trying to, uh, you know, um, align different controls to different frameworks and so forth. And, and that's all well and good. But a lot of times we get, we, we tackle this from too much. We try to do too much at once. And, and security programs are left kind of faltering and, and failing because we're, we're trying to bite up too much. We're trying to get from crawling to running. And we haven't gone through that uh, kind of getting up and walking slowly, if you will. Some of the best organizations that I've seen that are doing this are working together. It's forming that cross-functional team with multi-backgrounds from the IT, from the OT security, bringing in folks from operations, bringing in folks from control engineering and so forth, and having those discussions. And also realizing that this is absolutely a journey and it's not a project. The first thing that we do is doing an architecture review and doing that crown jewel analysis, understanding the important aspects of that environment. The next thing we do is we get into data hunting and, and, and collections and those kind of things. We may at this point actually um, do maturity type assessments to understand how well um, your environments are and how well your processes are in place. Moving into thinking about um, you know wor uh, working through tabletop exercises and so forth. Um, so once you've understood your environment, you can begin to do tabletops. You may be thinking about you know doing penetration testing. Well, you know it's always kind of that that cool thing to do. Um, but penetration testing should only be really done after you've done the basics, after you know you have a fairly good architecture, you've done everything you think um, is, is possible, now let's test it. Let's make sure maybe from a assumed breach type of a penetration test, 
that our systems can actually withstand that or we can actually detect that what's going on, that's a great time to do a pen, pen test and also get into your systems and do a managed threat hunt. At the end of the day though, yeah, ITOT is, is absolutely different. Even though we are utilizing the same types of systems and a lot and the higher level of our networks and our environment, it is different because, and it, and it really depends on the context and how we're using our IT systems. Uh, defense is doable. Protecting our systems is doable. It's hard, but it's absolutely doable. And you have an absolutely important role to play in this. So no matter what your background, if you are doing something from, an, from uh, if you're working somehow in the OT uh, space, your role is incredibly important. And I thank you for what you do because you're helping to safeguard your companies and ultimately safeguard and, and provide products and services to, um, to civilization. And that's Control Loop, brought to you by the CyberWire and powered by Dragos. For links to all of today's stories, check out our show notes at thecyberwire.com. Sound design for this show is by Elliot Peltzman, with mixing by Trey Hester. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our Dragos producers are Joanne Roche and Mark Urban. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.